Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our warning premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. I am thrilled today to be joined by my friend, Gail Becker, who is the founder and CEO, former CEO of Collie Power Pizza. She stepped aside from that role once the company hit $100 million in valuation. She is an entrepreneur. She is a woman business leader. She is the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. And she has one of the most fascinating stories, one of the most inspirational ones that you're going to find. So welcome, Gail Becker. Thank you, Steve. Thank you uh, for such a nice intro. It's certainly uh, great to be with an old dear friend. So we were in Hamburg, Germany at a, <laughs> at a, at a bar and we oh, were yeah. talking, we were talking, we had escaped from an Edelman <laughs> corporate meeting with some of the other yeah. troubled, it's, troubled employees. It's funny, but it's coming back to me. <laughs> you were an unlikely suspect, I will say, to be okay. out. You would normally have been up front, leading, doing, doing things, but but we got you out. You yeah. you cut the meeting, <laughs> and we were at a bar, and you were telling me, um about your kids. Uh, they had celiac disease. And you were talking about healthy eating, which is hard in Germany. <laughs> and there were no vegetables. And we talked about cauliflower. And I said, that's my least favorite vegetable. <laughs> and, and you said, you said, I make pizza did I? With cauliflower crust. And oh. I was like, there's no such thing, Gail. Um, and you were like, no, there is. And it's probably why you never asked me to be on the board or anything. But <laughs> you, you have taken an idea that was really a necessity as a mom. You're a business executive, a business leader running Edelman's uh, Los Angeles operations, West Coast operations, one of the very senior executives in the company. You're going home, you're making pizza dough, you're doing this, and you turn it into a $100 million business. How does that happen? Well, it sounds kind of crazy <laughs> when you say it all like that. But um, yeah, you know, it was really an interesting moment in time, really. Three things had sort of converged in my life. One was, yeah, we did work in corporate America together. And that day at that Hamburg bar and days like it were certainly wonderful. But the longer I spent in corporate America, the more I realized I need something else. I want to do something more meaningful. I want to help people. But I didn't quite know what that was. Around the same time, uh, my father passed away. My father, as, as you noted, was a Holocaust survivor. Actually, both my parents were. I'm a first-generation American. And when he died, something inside me sort of just snapped. And I realized I needed to honor him in some way. He was an entrepreneur. He came here with nothing. He built a small business, uh, the American dream. And... Uh, and I knew I just, I just, I just had to change my life and honor him. And then around the same time, I'm, I am the mom of two boys with celiac disease. I was always looking for ways to sort of put more nutrients into their diet. I was very disheartened by what I saw in, um, in the, in the frozen food aisle. And I made cauliflower crust pizza. One time I found it a recipe on the internet. There were about 500,000 on at the, at the time. And it was okay. And my son asked me to make it again. And I said, no, it took 90 minutes when I got home from a full day of work, as you said. But I looked for it everywhere. I couldn't find it. I put all of those three things together. My disenchantment with corporate life, this, this whole, this, this, this desire to honor my entrepreneurial father, and the realization that, you know what? people deserve better food and they shouldn't have to be relegated to spend 90 minutes to make it. And I put all those in a blender and I came out with, I know I'm going to leave my job and start a company called Cauliflower. And that's what I did in May of 2016. 
And so there's so many threads there <laughs> I want to I want to pick up and I want to talk about. But let, let's start with your disenchantment. Okay. Um, you are a senior executive. You have climbed as high in this company as as you can go or would want to go. Um, you know, when I when I was there, I didn't I tried to evade promotions, right? <laughs> you know, that was you, <laughs> you had were a, much smarter right, than I was. You, um, <laughs> but but you are um mid career. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, almost am I allowed to say you're when you start this? Oh, I was up there. <laughs> I mean, you're in your 40s. Sure. Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. Yeah. And and you start something, you start something new, but talk about talk about what's missing. Um, because you have everything you're supposed to have, right? That they tell you. Yeah. It's so true. It's so beautifully said, Steve. You're 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 exactly right. I think maybe even particularly for women, you know, if you if you do all of this and you work super hard and you you manage your your kids and you do all that, you're living the dream. And you're getting promoted and they're paying you a good salary. What more could you possibly want out of life? And I was really heading down that track until I realized I did want something more out of life. And I think losing someone close to you makes you recognize the fragility of life. And you either better be doing something you love or have one hell of a time trying because boy, who knows what's gonna be here tomorrow. And for me, it was the passing of my father. For a lot of your listeners, it could be the pandemic. Didn't that also make us realize the fragility of life. And I just knew I wanted something different. I had never taken a bet on myself. I had always relied on, you know, someone else to, 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 to put my, you know, to give me a paycheck or promote me to your point. I just, Something inside me, it, 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 I can only describe it as a calling, just said, this is something I need to do because I didn't want to know what would have happened if I didn't do it. And the day I left our former place of work is the day that I wrote a blog called, it's better to say oops than what if. Better to say oops. Than what if. What if. Tell me about your father. So my dad, uh, he uh, he was liberated he, uh, from uh, Auschwitz. He was there for four years. He came to America with nothing, less than nothing, no family, no money, no language, no help. And um, he was drafted to fight in the Korean War shortly after he got here, which is something a lot of people don't know. They used to draft the survivors. The boat after the Korean War, left him off in San Francisco. And uh, and that's where he built his small business. That's where he bought a tiny little house in 1974, about $62,000, um, a little pink house. Uh, and it was that little pink house that I sold um, to put everything literally I had in, in, into college. We're, we're going to talk about that little pink house in a minute, but tell me more about your father. He's born in what country? He was born in Germany uh, and um, all his family uh, was uh, killed during the war with the exception of his um, brother who was in the camp with him. And, um, you know, when the camp, when the, when he was liberate, he used to, um, he was what was known as a summer commando. And those are the, 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 the Jews who were forced into labor by the Nazis. So in my dad's case, he pulled the gold teeth out of the remains before they put them in the oven. And he did that for about four years. And he did that because when he got off the train, the the Nazi said, what does your father do? And he's my dad said, I'm a dentist. And he handed him a pair of pliers and said, okay, you're going to pull the gold teeth. And uh, that's what he did. And 
he, you know, he was a, he was a remarkable man um, and uh, just loved this country every single day of my life. He would say the following to me. He would say, God bless America. He'd say, Gail, do you have any idea how lucky you are to be born in this country? And, you know, it's interesting. You, you use the word threads before, Steve, and there are so many threads from my childhood, from being the child of two survivors, from being his child, that I could put together now and say, oh my goodness, of course this is what I ended up doing with my life. You know, my father used to, he built a small uh, salvage business. He used to buy uh, dented cans of, of food and other things and sell them to hotels and restaurants around San Francisco. I would go with him on these sales calls. I had no idea I was going on sales calls at the time, like, you know, six, seven years old. I used to ring the cash register at my dad's store starting at five years, five years old. And I, I really got such a good sense of business of knowing people, of building building relationships, and how that is really the cornerstone stone of of um, of business, and um, you know, and I think, you know, that's why when he died, you know, he always said to me, "Why would you want to work for somebody else?" Never understood it. He never understood it. I used to say, as we all do, "Oh, Dad," never understanding what he was trying to tell me. And when he passed away, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, oh, now I get it. And that's why I turned my life upside down to, to honor him. Tell me about your mom. My mom was also born in Germany. She uh, was in the kinder transport. So she they basically um, put her on a train and um, uh, to go live with a Catholic family in England, uh, never saw her parent, ne never saw her mother or brother again, but her father did make it out. He went to London to, to get her. They lived there for a little while. And then they both came to America on the Queen Mary. And my grandfather, who's the obviously the only grandparent I ever met, he had a, a small dairy farm in, uh, in Orange County, California, which way back then used to be all farm. And uh, so, you know, sometimes I, I sort of halfway joke and say I grew up on a farm. In many ways, I did because um, we each had our own pet cow. I used to have to milk it and take care of it. And, um, you know, so I so I've always I think I'm probably the only person in the world who loves the smell of cows. But I there there was something, you know, that that sort of farming, the the importance of food, um, which I think, which which was a, a theme from both of my parents because they went so for hungries for so long. Food was always the utmost important in growing up. And so there were so many telltale signs that led to me, that led me to this moment in my life. Brothers and sisters? Uh, two sisters. Um, unfortunately, one passed away during COVID, from COVID. Very sorry about that. Yeah, um, you. When you think about your life, it's improbability <laughs> yes. that your father and your mother survived. Mm -hmm. They survived a genocide mm -hmm. and they made it to the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think about that a lot, actually, Steve. It's it's such a it's it's I can hear the weight of it in your words. I feel the weight of it on my shoulders. And um, I think that's why I thought, gosh, I better not waste it. Your father works his entire life. Mm -hmm. He's not a rich man. Nope. Um He's a working class American. He owns a business. Mm -hmm. He survived combat. Mm -hmm. He survived Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. He raises a family and he leaves something behind mm -hmm. to you. Yeah. And he gives you in an inheritance that small pink house. Yeah. What do you do with it? 
Um, you know, <laughs> against the advice of just about everyone I know, <laughs> I sold it and um, I put every last dime into cauliflower. I wish I could say why I did it. Now, lots of people come up to me and say, oh my goodness, that was so smart. Sure, looking back, it probably was pretty smart. But at the time, it was probably the stupidest thing I could have done. You know, let's take really, you know, the only money I'm ever going to inherit. And which wasn't a huge amount by, you know, but, but enough. Um, and put it into a business that I knew nothing and into an industry that I knew nothing about. Smart. Talk about, talk about what it's like emotionally for you to be all in. All mm. in. Yeah. Um, I call this the Cortez strategy. This is, oh, this is me. when you burn the boats on the beach. Yeah. Right? yeah. There's no way back. Yeah. Only, only forward. You will either succeed yeah. or you will fail. Yeah. It's interesting. Two things. One is I, you know, in the beginning before, so I worked on Collier Power for about a year before I told anyone what it was and before I launched in market. And I remember thinking back to that year, like, boy, that was great, right? I had no one to disappoint. I could have, it could have failed a hundred times during that first year of building the company and no one would have known. And it was sort of great. And no one was relying on me. I didn't have any employees and it was, it was great. It was just me. The bigger I got, the more people I relied on me, the more mouths I had to feed the, when I, as I grew and got investors and all of these different stakeholders in the business, the weight of it is sometimes, you know, strangulating. It is because it is particularly during the pandemic, which exacerbated everything. It is all that I thought about morning, noon, and night. I would wake up, first thing, thinking about it. I'd go to bed, last thing, thinking about it. I would fight for that business like it was my third child. I never, I don't have two children. I have three children, Collie Power being the third. And let me tell you, the, by far the most challenging of the three, by far. <laughs> um, but uh, what I will say to your question, which is a very, very good one, what I decided to do in order to sort of make it through that that weight that 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 all inness is i decided to change my definition of success so and to change my my so what i mean by that is some people define success oh i got a huge valuation or i was able to raise x millions of dollars or i was able to sell the company for y or whatever it is that's not success to me. What is success to me is something I've already done. I made that very first step. I cashed in everything I had and I bet on myself. And I am an entrepreneur. Now, I don't know what the future is going to hold. I hope it's good, but who that who the heck knows? We're certainly well on our way. But shouldn't that be people's definition of success? Why does success always have to be monetary? Why can't it be your willingness to try, your willingness to, to challenge yourself, to learn something new, to bet on yourself, to, to, to see what the world has to offer? That's a far better, and I would say richer, definition of success. You just said something that struck me, and it was the passion that you said it declaratively. You declared, and you sure fucking are, right? You said, <laughs> you said, you said right? I mean, there's no doubt, right? You said, I am an entrepreneur. Yeah. When I met you, you I mean, were not. That's true. You were, you were not an entrepreneur in your 20s. 
-hmm. nor your 30s, right? nor your 40s, right. but you are in your 50s and you've built a really big company. How many, how many people work for Kali Power? Well, uh, not including obviously our manufacturing because those are co-manufacturers mm -hmm. and we don't include. So it's not the people that work on the floor making our pizzas, although they're clearly there are hundreds and hundreds of do that. But just in sort of corporate headquarter land, it's about it's over 50. What have you learned about leadership in running a company that you didn't know as an executive? in a big company who was you know fundamentally a consultant right you were advising mm -hmm. big companies some of the biggest in the world on their mm -hmm. crises on their mm -hmm. strategies on their marketing on their on their brand on a hundred different public facing mm -hmm. activities um I learned a couple things and I would say even maybe even I think, you know, the the pandemic even even helped sort of drive some of this home. Well, the first thing I would say, just in terms of your your consultant reference, which is a good one, because you're absolutely right. The interesting thing about being a consultant is that and you know this better than ever, anyone. Sometimes people listen to you and sometimes they don't. And guess what you get to do when you start your own business? You get to listen to yourself. You get to listen to all that advice that no one else bothered to take. That's liberating. That's amazing. And that's really been an eye-opening part of this business. Um, but the other key part to leadership is listening. And when you start a business, that you know nothing in an industry that you know nothing about. What do you have to do? You have to hire people smarter than you who know the business, who've been in it. So what did I do the very first day that I decided to start a business called Kali Power? I hired consultants because I needed them to teach me about the industry. And what is so interesting, I think, particularly about being a slightly older entrepreneur, is that you have the courage and the confidence to ask a lot of questions, to say you don't know something, to listen to other people. Doesn't mean you need to always follow their advice, but you need to listen. Do you? So, I was gonna say, do you do you think being over 50 is a huge differentiator in that you're at a place in life if you look back like at yourself at 35, 40, when you're dealing with the bankers, when you're dealing with the lawyers, when you're dealing with all of the things that come with a company that becomes a nine-figure company that's worth over a hundred million dollars? the capacity to look at it with some life experience and say, I'm not doing that. Get out of here. You're yeah. not going to take from me what, what I built. And how, how have you navigated that as you've, as you've gone through this? I mean, again, right. As you said, right. You truly, and I, and I have a question, right, that's, that, that, that's coming up, right, which is just the operations of it, the mechanics, right? Like, how, how do you do it? How do you go setting about to do this? But you have no kind of core competency in the space. Mm -hmm. You are not from a banking background. You're from a, from a PR and marketing background, and you start it you build it, you navigate it, and you don't lose it along the way, including during the biggest supply source disruption, right, in modern world history, which occurs during during pandemic. Mm -hmm. What what is it that you're relying on? Is it is it a little bit of wisdom? Is it channeling your dad? Is it a native grit? What 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 is it that's fueling you 
right, into a space where you know nothing about it? Uh, wow, such, <laughs> such a good question. Um, I would say it's a couple things. First off, look, there are lots of people who come from, you know, very popular business schools, very famous business schools, and they graduate with a business plan and they say, okay, I'm going to graduate. Here's my business plan. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to make X amount of money. Then I'm going to sell it. Then I'm going to do this. And that's a great way to start the business. I got nothing against that. But that's not my way. Because I never started the business for that reason. I started the business, and this I think is key, and maybe it is maybe it is associated with being a slightly older entrepreneur. Maybe it is associated with being a female entrepreneur. I don't know, maybe a little bit of both. But the one thing I knew was, you know what? I had a pretty good gig in corporate life. I used to make a lot of money. I went stayed at night. So tell us, I had a good gig. Now I have the opposite of all that. Half as rich, twice as happy. That's what I always say. But what's the point? The point is, I left that to, to achieve something that was going to be more of a mission. I needed to listen to my mission. And for me, my mission was helping people. And that knowledge of the consumer, that empathy with the consumer, there was what I came to learn is nothing was more valuable than that. Why? Think about it like this. Companies like Nestle and but other any huge, you know, corporate conglomerate in the in the grocery store, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on R&D every year. Why did I, someone who had no experience in food, come up with the call, the frozen cauliflower crust pizza. Because I knew what the consumer wanted. Of course, I did my research as well, though probably not enough. But I knew it. I knew it and I wanted to give it to them. And that is what drove me then. And that is what drives me today. And that is, yes, did I get hurt along the way because I didn't know investment banking, and I didn't know private equity, and I didn't know the investor world, I sure as hell did. I sure as hell did. I did. But do I get up every morning thinking about our consumers and the ways that I can help them? I do. Do I read every single piece of email, social media content, letter, phone call, every single thing that every consumer has ever said, uh, written to us, I've, I've read every last word. So both skills are really good. Having only one is going to hurt you by not having the other. But at the end of the day, is, is knowing banking and investment and private equity, is that going to make you a good company? What is the number one lesson you learned when you talked about being bruised by the bankers, the lawyers through it. What is it? What would you tell to an aspiring entrepreneur or, or someone who's building a company and it's starting to starting to succeed? It's starting to go. It's starting to grow. I would probably say two things. I would say one, hire a lot of lawyers, lots of lawyers. And by the way, when I say lots of lawyers, I do mean lots of lawyers. Don't use one lawyer for everything. You need a lawyer who specializes in manufacturing, a lawyer who specializes in banking, a lawyer who specializes in investors, a lawyer who specializes in employment, lots of specialty lawyers. And one to keep an eye on all of them. And one to keep an eye on all, exactly. Like <laughs> you can't overestimate right. the, the necessity of lawyers, unfortunately. But right. if you won't do that, you are definitely at a disadvantage. The other thing I will say, the other two things I will say is one, never, never um, underestimate the amount of people, the ecosystem who was out there 
waiting to prey on entrepreneurs, on founders, on people starting businesses, full of them. Lots of people who are there to help you. Boy, I wouldn't be anywhere where I am if I didn't meet so, so many people wanting to help the David versus the Goliath. And, you know, every day I'm so grateful for them. But also lots of people waiting to take advantage of you as well. And then finally, I think as, a, as an entrepreneur, you have to realize no one is going to care as much as you do. No one's going to work as hard. No one's going to care as much. And you know what? As soon as you make that realization, that's okay. That's okay. They're still going to work really hard. They're still going to care. But don't expect anyone to care as much as you do. There's a, there's a profile in the Washington Post by, I think, a woman who has claim on being the best sports writer in America, Sally Jenkins. It's a profile on two of the great athletes of my younger days, Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova and their rivalry and their friendship. And it is a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing and journalism in this complex portrait of these two super athletes, super competitors, and this bond of friendship, of rivalry, uh, of a lifetime relationship, 50 years, their struggles with cancer that they share vividly in this. And it, it is a beautiful, beautiful profile. One of the features of it that I found completely fascinating, and I think is a big difference between men and women, mm. is that it remarks, and they are both of them grateful at the place in life that they both are, that their records are split, tied. Mm. Wow. Two of the greatest women tennis mm champions of all time, icons, yeah. women who were each other's chief rivals, have a split decision, mm -hmm. an equal number of championships, and they're good with it. Yeah. And my theory is no guy is mm -hmm. going to be good with that, or very few. I'm going to use as my evidence of it, right? Is the is the movie, right? I guess it's Rocky, Rocky Three. Oh yeah, right. And it ends, right, where Apollo Creed, Pearl Weathers, and and Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa, go into the boxing match after the championship fight to settle it, mm -hmm. right? And you never know until later, Rocky, who won the fight, right? But right. but men right as a general proposition and i don't i don't think this is a positive right I, I think it's a character flaw right would be unsatisfied with that mm, when we look at an era where second generation of women in the workplace mm -hmm. um at your age ceos the generation of trailblazers that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Hillary Clinton was part of, uh, the women who first entered the workplace. You have been around men uh, for a long time, men in business, men executives. You are their peer now in every way, running a big company. What What is the difference without overgeneralizing between male and female leadership? And, and what what do businesses miss when they have an absence of female leadership in the in the company, not as a quota, but as a but as an ingrained and fundamental aspect of the company's culture and value set? Uh, wow. Uh, how long do you have? <laughs> um, there is a, a, a wonderful book. I just want to give a plug to uh, Julia Burston from uh, CNBC wrote a book, um, When Women Lead. 
she included a tiny paragraph um, on uh, on Kali Power, which is great, but just extraordinary women and the the things that they do that are unique to women. And by the way, you obviously come from government. You could look at um, you could look at uh, uh, governments that were run by women during the pandemic, countries, states, and how they performed versus other places. And there's some commonalities there. And, you know, women are very comfortable, and this goes back to a little bit about what we were talking about before, women are very comfortable listening to others, taking in that advice. They have nothing to prove, so they just want to do the best job. And usually it's a very sort of um, collaborative way of, you know, managing a business and, 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 and sort of and, and listening to the experts around the table, making a decision, <clears throat> making a tough decision, making a fair decision, but taking in all of those inputs, which I think is, is really, really important. Um, I think, I think, you know, another thing that, that, that women do very well, that they, they, they really do have a sense of empathy. Now, you could look at empathy as being a soft, a soft element of business. But in actuality, it is a key element because if you're not empathetic with the ultimate user of your product, your service, your business, then you don't have a business. If you can't put your mind into the into the body of who your customer is, what are you doing? So I think, and most importantly, most importantly, women run businesses perform better. That's not, that's not me saying it. That's fact. You could, lots of Harvard Business Review, you name it, the ROI on female-run businesses is notably higher than on male-run businesses for many reasons, not the least of which are the several I mentioned. And yet, and yet, female entrepreneurs, I can't even say 3% anymore, get 3% of venture capital dollars. It's now, the pandemic, it's now just over two. So that's what I can't square. The businesses that we run have a better ROI, yet no one wants to give us money. That's a shocking statistic. Three three percent. Google it. Of the venture Google it right capital now. of the venture yeah. capital. Yes. I wonder. I wonder when you cut that, what the what the percentage is for minority women. Even less. Must even be less. infinite. 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 Even less. Hundred percent. Even less. It is criminal. It, it look it's it's the same way i mean it's not is it so surprising yes it is so surprising because you would think oh but the businesses perform better and i'm looking at the data therefore i should give them money right but it's the same way that you see why why does you know why are we still not seeing enough female leadership at the top of companies because we prom people promote people that you know, you hire people, you know, you promote people, you know, you, 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 you give people a platform that have similar backgrounds to you. Um, and it's like, just to use cauliflower as an example, very, very hard for people to wrap their head around. Well, I don't understand why, why would anyone want a pizza crust made from cauliflower? It's it's delicious, by the way, too. Thank right? you. It is and, delicious. And I can't, and I I'm not a cauliflower guy, right? Like with the vegetable, but I have them, and you can always like it. It's it's great, right? Because there's always something healthy that you can pop in. Yeah, but the yeah, exactly. But it's like unless you know, let's face it. Most of those five hundred sixty nine thousand recipes that people were making online were being made by women, right? 
was the unforeseen target right there. I mean, it was an idea hiding in plain sight, really. But 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 yet it was so hard that very first time, so hard to raise money for Kali Power, so hard to raise money for all of these female entrepreneurs out there who have amazing businesses and amazing ideas and fantastic data and can't get the money. So I, I can't square that circle. I can give you lots of reasons why, but you know, the more we talk about it, the more, the better off we're gonna be. And by the way, if Kali Power does anything but helps remind people, hey, maybe a female founded business is a good bet. I'm all for it. If it only does that, that is a huge success as far as I'm concerned. Gail, I want to ask you about the movie poster behind you, A Journey with Purpose. Yeah. That is your father who we talked about. Yeah. And that's his grandson, your son. Yes. Yes. Uh, Joshua, uh, my, um, my son was nine years old when we took him to Auschwitz with my dad. And that was the same age that my dad was when he went in. Talk about from a mother's eyes and a daughter's eyes, what that trip was like. What did your son learn about his grandfather there? What did he I, learn about life there? Yeah. You know, it's so funny, Steve, because I had a lot of people say to me, you're going to take your your nine-year-old son to Auschwitz? Like, like, you know, like I was supposed to take him on a Disney cruise instead. And I said, uh, yeah, I am going to take him. It was so important for me, for my son to understand the responsibility that he has as a result of being my father's grandson. It's that passing of the torch. I wanted to put a fine moment on it. I wanted my dad to say, to exhale, to say, I don't have to do this anymore because I have this young grandson who's going to, you know, fight for injustice, you know, fight for the, the, the people who don't have a voice who, to fight ignorance and bigotry and hatred and anti-Semitism and so much of what we're seeing today. I mean, I think about my dad when I see the news every day because there's just more of it. And I think, you know, he thought there was going to be less. And so I, I wanted my son to understand he has a responsibility in life that it is up to him and and me and my and my youngest as well to leave the world a little bit better than we found it and to help fight for people who don't have a voice and causes that don't that um that need um that need our attention and you know it's funny my dad used to say my dad used to say you know gail you know, being in the camps, it, obviously the cold was awful. The pulling the gold teeth was excruciating. Waking up next to, you know, cold bodies in the morning was horrifying. But the worst thing, the worst thing he said was the hunger. And I thought, I, I, that never left me. I thought, if I can, through this business that he helped me build if i can you know help people not you know help feed people help um we give a percentage of our of our sales to help build teaching gardens and underserved schools across the country so that you know young kids really understand the 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 power that comes from eating healthy foods and how that can feed their brains and, 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 you know, continue them to, to do great things in life. That to me was like that, that was my connection. I don't know what it's going to be for my son, but I can tell you this, he knows it better be something. When I listen to you talk there, 
it's not that I think that you mean that. I know that you mean every every word of that because I know you. Um, as an intellectual exercise, I'm going to push back on something. Okay. Okay. And I'd like you to I'd like you to respond to it. Okay, please. Because we live in an era where, as a practical matter. Trust has collapsed in very ne nearly every institution you can yeah. you can think of. Yeah, Elon Musk, for example, is on his knees in China, uh, pledging fealty to the Chinese Communist Party, as we as we speak. Literally yesterday, the lessons of Trump, to some degree, take as much as you can get. Empathies for losers get yours, get in line, don't stand up, shut up, don't rise up, don't do anything, right, other than take responsibility, obligations. Uh, these are suckers' creeds. Take. Because there's a lot of people who share that philosophy. Yeah. There are a lot of people who share that philosophy. But those people are loud, which makes the numbers seem bigger than they are. Most people want to live their lives in peace and and not fight every day, and not take every day, and give. I have seen so much of this. I know you've seen so much of this. Even in the pandemic, we saw so many people giving to people who were dying. So yes, those people exist. And there's nothing that I can do about that. There's nothing that my sons can do about that. But we can be responsible for putting more good out into the world, to leave it better than we found it, to help people, which is always more rewarding for the people who give than the people who get. And, um, you know, my, my parents taught me that. Think about the family in England who just took in a strange kid, my mother, and raised her. Think about all the all the people who 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 helped my dad when he came to this country. He didn't have a penny. There was a a bakery in New York. Becker means baker, by the way, in German. There was a bakery in New York where my dad used to sweep the floor in the morning and sleep on the floor at night. So yes, there are, those people are always going to exist. But so do, but so do, but but so does everybody else. And I, I haven't lost hope. Was your father an optimist? Yes, he was. That was the miraculous thing. He I think you when you when you've known tragedy in your life, and we all, and some of us do, you have two avenues. You can, it can bring you down and you can live your life just mired in that tragedy. Or you can use it as fuel. My father was the most optimistic man I have ever met. He woke up, got, God blessing America. He went to work and he, he just loved talking to people. He didn't talk to the people who were sitting at the table next to him in the restaurant. He went in the kitchen and he talked to the cooks and the chefs and the busboys and um, and the people who worked there and because they were more like him. And um, he, he really was an optimist, Steve. And it's such an interesting question because I don't think I've ever thought of him in that way. But boy, when you said it, it's just... It was so obvious. Yeah, and he had every reason not to be because he saw the worst in humanity. He lived the worst in humanity. 
what he believed the most in humanity. And, you know, I think that's probably what he left me with. And I'm, I'm so grateful. What does it mean to be an American to you? Uh, you know, I, I will say it, it does mean responsibility. I, I, I do feel responsibility to being an American. I do feel, um, I feel very fortunate. Um, I, I feel, um, like there's sort of, it's our responsibility to help others and help countries that are trying to achieve their freedom that are trying to live democratic ideals. I do feel that is our responsibility. I saw what happened. I lived what happened through the voices of my parents when they didn't. You know, America was not was not known to be found during that time. It was England who saved my mother, not America. And so I think when I think of being American, I think of just like a a really fortunate responsibility what's next for the company where where is this company going that what is, is your vision ahead well we uh so uh we have a lot of new innovation coming out this year a lot probably our heaviest innovation year which i'm very excited about you're going to get a big box of it steve at your home i'm very excited Excellent. um and you know we have we have a big vision right we, today we make you know the number one better for you frozen pizza in america we have a lot of other products as well in different categories uh that are also doing great and it is our goal to be the number one better for you fr frozen food company in america and we are well on our way are you having fun most days I'm having fun. It's not quite as fun as it used to be. It's not quite as fun as it used to be. It used to be so fun. Oh my goodness. You know, I think, but that's normal, right? Like the bigger a company gets, the less fun it gets, the more, the, the higher up you get in a, in a company, you, you started off the conversation by talking about promotion. The more you get promoted, the less of the stuff that brought you into the company is the stuff you love to do, the less of it you like to, that, that, that you now get to do, right? That's just the way of life. So is it fun? Sure. Is it a privilege? Every single day. Let's leave it there. CEO, 